So earlier this week, I was listening to a Christmas playlist in the car, and up came, all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth. Remember that song? And I realized somewhere in the midst of the lyrics that there's really only two categories of Christmas songs this time of year. There's the category of sentimental nostalgia, like Silent Night or I'll Be Home for Christmas. And then there's these songs that like a winter mosquito go buzzing into your ear and once they land, they fester. In 1944, Donald Gardner, Smithtown, New York, took a poll of the second grade class and he asked them, what do you want more than anything for Christmas this year? And of course, all the hands went up in the room. Each child was eager to give their response. But as Mr. Gardner called on each one, he could barely understand a word they were saying because nearly half of his class were missing their two front teeth. And so on a whim, Donald began humming this made-up tune right there in the classroom, and the Christmas tradition was born. He put lyrics to his tune, sang it at a national teacher's convention, and the next year... By 1948, it was at the top of the charts. And we've all been suffering ever since. (laughs) If I could only have my two front teeth, then I could wish you a Merry Christmas. You know, we're all prone to focus in on what we don't have, yeah? If I only had fill in the blank, I'd be a better me. If I only had a more fit body, If I only had a better voice, sharper mind, a faster wit, if I only had more money, more time, more friends. And I bring that to you because in our lesson this morning, Isaiah tells us that this Christ child will be called Mighty God, which is like the polar opposite of any kind of deficit you have in your life, yeah? Like in this manger, there is no weakness or shortcomings. There is no missing piece of the puzzle, And when you first read that name, Mighty God, it makes sense, right? This is Christianity 101. Jesus is fully human, and Jesus is fully God, and therefore he must be mighty. He's mighty in power. He's mighty in word. He's mighty in deed. And if you're at all remotely familiar with the life of Jesus, then you know his life was chock full of mighty things that only God can do. This is not just a name. This word mighty defines who he is. How does a mere man walk on water? I mean, he doesn't, right? Unless he's God. How do you raise Lazarus from the dead? Only a mighty God does that. Jesus commanded the seas to be still. He fed mouths of thousands from scarcity. He cast out demons. But perhaps more than all of that, he forgave sins. Even the most religious leaders at the time knew only mighty God can do that. In fact, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke's gospel for a minute. I want us to look at chapter 146, and I want to show you how even Mary, in the midst of this Christmas story, in the midst of her own frailty and youth, she seems to understand this reality. In context, real quick, remember, um, Mary finds out she's pregnant by the angel Gabriel, and, uh, and with this news, she goes to meet her relative Elizabeth, who is also very pregnant with John the Baptist. And we're told the two meet together. The, the infant John instantly leapt in his mother's womb. And, and he did so because he knew this God was mighty. You might say John was announcing the arrival of Jesus' birth before John himself came into the world. And at the same time, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And she tells Mary, you are blessed among all women. 
And in the midst of this scene, Mary can't help but break out in praise and look at what she sings about the mighty power of God. Look at this in verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. See, even Mary seemed to echo that the prophecy of Isaiah that this is a mighty God. But, but here's my question. Do we really understand what that means? Like when you look in the mirror and you see your own weakness and you are full, well aware of your shortcomings, deep within you, you see what is missing in your life and you think, man, if I only had two front teeth, do you understand what it means that you follow a mighty God? You know, the enemy would love nothing more than to shut us down, right? To make you think that your God, though mighty in power, awesome in deeds, could never use your weakness. If you've been to Spring Hill for any time, then uh, you know all about my two front teeth. As a young child, uh, I was the only one in my family that didn't need braces. I had a perfect mouth. It was a warm day. I was out riding scooters with my brothers. We were racing down the street, and for once in my life, I was in the lead, and I smoked them. In fact, I smoked them so bad, we got to the finish line, and I looked back to gloat to make sure they knew about this victory and how well I was doing, and it was right there that humility quite literally smacked me in the face. Just as I turned my head back, I ran right into the back of a parked car. And still to this day, that random Christmas hymn is my jam. <laughs> Give God thanks for good dentists that have artistic skills. No, but hear me out, right? We all know all too well our weaknesses. We, we know the things that we haven't been given. We can look around at, at those around us and we can think, wait, well, why didn't God bless me with that gift? This morning, I want to show you, though, how this mighty God in a humble manger speaks to that question. And what I want you to see is that in Christ, we have this Messiah. We have this Messiah whose power is made perfect, especially and particularly in our weakness. It's going to get dangerous here because um, I'm going to push us a little bit. We're going to practice some Hebrew without a license and uh, if you focus in with me, I promise this is good stuff. Because when Isaiah calls this child mighty God, the Hebrew for that word, those two words I should say, is El Gibor. Everybody say it with me. El Gibor. And you should know that the original recipients of, of this prophecy, when they heard those two words, it would have been all too familiar to them. When you put them together, it makes quite the powerful statement. El meaning God, which was a very well-known phrase in the Old Testament, and Gibor meaning the mighty one, mighty God. And when you heard that name, the last thing you would have thought about was meekness or mildness or weakness. In fact, look at this, Psalm 24, 8 through 9. Listen to what it says. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory might come in. See, that word Gabor in the, the Old Testament, it painted this picture of a man of valor, mighty and victorious. It was a word that conveyed success and handsome wit, winsomely powerful. And here's how we know. 
Throughout the Old Testament, gibor was actually paired with another Hebrew word long before el, which is known as hayel. Now say this with me. Gibor, hayel. Gibor, hayel. Gibor meaning mighty. Hayel meaning man of strength. And a gibor hayel was like the standard of Hebrew manhood in all of scripture. Let me show you what I mean. 1 Samuel 16 to 18. You might remember Saul, King Saul has turned from the Lord in all of his ways. The spirit has left him. He's desperately looking for some comfort and solace. And so he tells his servants, bring me a man who can play the harp. This is what one of his servants said. He says, I happen to know a man. Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. The Lord is with him. He's talking, of course, about King David. A man of valor, a man of war, a gibor hayil. This was like the pinnacle statement of manhood for an Israelite, a mighty warrior. So whether it was King David or Gideon or Jephthah or Saul or Jeroboam, this was a phrase that described wealth and power and military might. It was used for the mightiest of kings. So imagine now Isaiah comes on scene and he makes this promise with the same word, different play, that there will be a child born to us, a son given, and we'll call his name El Gibor. Not only is he mighty in power like the men of old, but he's divine, God in the flesh. And in this context, this will blow your mind. Remember, I mentioned last week, the nation of Israel at this time had been invaded. They were taken captive. The Assyrian invasion was full on. God's people stuck under this powerful empire result of of God's judgment and their sin. And you better believe they knew all about their weaknesses the mistakes and sin that they had made, the shortcomings are evident right before them. This was a hopeless and helpless kind of scene. And yet Isaiah tells them, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelled in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. A child is born to us, a son is given, and his name shall be El Gabor, the mighty one. I mean, you talk about conjuring up like hopeful sediment from rock bottom. And think with me, what does a mighty man of valor do? He protects his people, right? He leads them in his strength. He goes before them in battle. He's distinguished. He's victorious. As one scholar wrote, when you hear that word Gabor, you should probably think something more like um, SEAL Team 6. Just side tangent. Let's talk about weaknesses for a minute. Earlier this week, I found out only 6% of all those who apply actually meet the requirements to try out to be a Navy SEAL. If you make it in, you have a one in four chance of completing the program. And traditionally, of course, you know candidates break about the time where it's freezing cold. They're set in full-on hypothermia, and they're told to get back in the cold water. If you make it through all that, your last five and a half days of your training, you train for 20 hours a day, you run for more than 200 miles, and you sleep, get this, for only four hours total in five and a half days. Gibor Hayil. Navy SEALs don't lose, right? Navy SEALs don't expose their weaknesses. And Isaiah says, get that picture in your mind. This is your God. 
Isaiah 42, 13. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out, shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. But if that's true, then reconcile this with me. How is it that this mighty God, warrior king, takes on ordinary flesh and the meekness of humanity and the frailty of infancy and in about the most vulnerable way I can imagine enters into the world? How is that? I mean, this is a paradox, right? It's the opposite image of what I would have expected to see. The, the El Gibor should have written in on a, a gallant horse draped in gold, donning a sword. He should have brought his whole army of men behind him. Great day, ready for battle. And yet Joseph and Mary can't even find this child a proper place to lay his head. And you know the story, right? They placed Jesus in a feeding trough. How is it that this mighty God is, is soon wrapped on his mother's chest as she and Joseph now run for their lives from death threats of King Herod? That doesn't seem mighty. And then we can just consider this child's life. I mean, Jesus continued from there. He was essentially homeless. No feasts of royalty, no exquisite banquets, no fancy attire. He was despised. He was rejected, spit upon. How is the mighty one of valor crucified? You know, if the manger was humble, then we know the cross was humiliating. If, if Jesus was born and wrapped in swaddling cloths, he ended his life nearly naked, hanging on a cross. See, that's not how you fight a battle. I mean, to the world, that's defeat. A Gibor was a proven warrior, a distinguished man of power. No one considers themselves victorious when they're lying on the pavement with their teeth knocked out. I should know. And yet, think about this for the next two weeks. That is the paradox of Christmas. Somehow, this was God's plan from the very beginning this is how he would declare victory. I took you to that moment last week where Adam and Eve ate the fruit. You'll remember in Genesis 3, after the devastation of that fall, God starts laying out the consequences. This is what he says to the serpent in verse 13. Look at this. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Just note this, right? This is not casual language. This is a battle scene. There will be enmity. There will be hatred between you and the offspring of that woman. This is why we call him the enemy. You know, I think it's important for us to understand that the battle that still exists, right? Still to this day, we, we battle against that same fallen one who wants to exploit your weaknesses, who wants to accuse us in our shortcomings, ultimately to see us fall. And yet from the very beginning, God reveals to us all of his cards in his word. And he says the battle plan is already laid out. For the offspring of Eve is coming one, Jesus Christ, who shall strike his head even though the enemy will bruise his heel. As my boy R.C. Sproul once said, this is the first herald of good news in the Bible. 
There is one coming, we're told, who will destroy this enemy. There is an El Gibor who, even though he'll be mocked and bruised and crucified and killed, by his death will come victory. So you'll remember, Jesus is born. His parents bring him up to the temple to be dedicated, as was custom. This man, Simeon, who had been waiting for some time for Jesus, puts him in his arm, and he tells Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul too. In other words, this this mighty warrior will soon die for the sins of the world. You know, I believe uh, preaching is a a team sport and every Thursday a group of us gather up at 8 a.m. at the Bozeman site here to to talk about the previous sermon and the one coming and um, I want to extend you a personal welcome to that, invitation to that. Uh, We have a good time nerding it up, but... Um, This week, Pastor Brian joined in, and I thought he shared something really poignant about this passage, and that is that when it comes to our weaknesses and our shortcomings, think about this, like, we would love nothing else than to fill that gap, right? We would all love to see ourselves elevated and our, our gifts multiplied. You know, we easily can see what we don't have and start to covet what we want. And yet, when we look at the manger, what we realize is God operates by an entirely different method. In fact, look at how Paul articulated this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at this. He says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I mean, when you looked in the mirror this morning, and you saw all the imperfections, did it ever occur to you that even your weak points can be used to bring him glory. And maybe rather than focusing on what we don't have, what what if instead we focus on what we do have? That when you put your faith in Christ, you have a mighty God by his spirit now leading your life. The Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians chapter two, he, he says we should have the same mindset as that mighty God in the flesh. This is what he says. Though he was born in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? So that mighty God might get the glory and the praise. See, there's something incredible about a God who is perfect and holy and mighty who would choose a manger to reveal his love. Right? Who would choose a, a cross for victory. So often I think we live with this desire to be mighty ourselves and, and yet there was only one who proved his might and is worthy of that name and he did it with a manger and a cross for us. Ken Watson was just an ordinary neighbor. He had befriended this new couple when they moved in next door and about the time they were expecting their first child named Katie. And from the moment Katie was born, Ken decided he was gonna be her adopted grandpa next door and they were instantly best friends. They hung out just about every day of her life, almost as though she was one of his own. But just about that age when Katie began to talk and and walk, Ken found out he had cancer. Katie, of course, didn't fully understand until the funeral, and it was there she realized her best friend was gone. 
as the tears were rolling down her cheeks, they got back to the house. Ken's daughter stopped by with this massive trash bag. And in this trash bag was a note from Ken. He, he had a plan. The note described to her parents how he had picked not just one gift for this little girl for this Christmas that he was gone, but it had the next 14 years worth of wrapped presents for this little girl. The story went viral and from Watson's death soon came hundreds of thousands of people who decided to join him in making a promise to bring their neighbors a present, some of whom they admitted they had never met before. See, I guess the point that I'm trying to make is this. What makes our God so mighty to save is that Jesus in his might chooses death for us so that when everything seemed lost, the darkest hour on this earth, we weren't just given one gift for Christmas or 14 gifts for Christmas. Jesus gave us the eternal gift for Christmas. And level with me, right? We all have different strengths and weaknesses, but the one weakness that we all wish we could shore up in this life is death. There is no power that you and I have on our own to escape it. You can be mighty with intellect. You can be mighty in resources, mighty in riches and fame and fortune. But when you look in the mirror, we know time is fleeting. See, in the manger gives us the answer to that gap. We call him mighty because it's by his name and his name alone that we're saved. All I want for Christmas is my two front teeth. Maybe. But do you realize that it's in your weakness that we find his glory? And what if instead of thinking about what we don't have and making excuses for why we can't do this or that, what if we gave pause first to remember what we do have? You shall call his name El Gibor, mighty God, emptied himself, born in the likeness of men, and from the manger to the cross, the Father exalted him and bestowed on his name the name that is above every name. What we find two weeks from now, come Christmas morn, is this God who has promised us his power is made perfect, especially in our weakness. The question is, how will that gift change the way we live between now and then. Let me invite the band to come up and let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that um, this story of Christmas, as many times as we revisit it, Lord, it strikes us with awe yet again. God, we will never wrap our minds around what it means that the, the one who put creation into order is the same one who was born to us, Emmanuel, God with us. And Lord, somehow, this mighty God, valiant as a warrior, chose to be born vulnerable and humble to the point of death on the cross. God, we are amazed at that gift. And so, Lord, whatever it is that we desire this Christmas, God, I pray that you would put that desire on our hearts to open it, to receive it, to believe in it, and to live it every day. 
God, thank you that you are mighty in power, awesome indeed. And Lord, thank you that you are mighty to save. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.